Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan everyone and welcome to the Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name focusing on investigative arts, society, and new technologies. The 14th edition of Tactics in Practice, held in Ljubljana in the spring of 2023, was dedicated to scale, as was the series of four podcasts in which I interviewed Laura Tripaldi, Nestor Siren Stefan Kuhn, Anna Engelhardt and Martin Kevich, and Anthony Downey for the last episode. But I was in fact not quite done with scale, as is evident by the existence of what you're listening to right now. This is a bonus, surprise, extracurricular, if you will, episode with someone who's thought a lot about scale. With me today is Yusi Parika, writer and professor in digital aesthetics and culture at Aarhus University, also visiting professor at FAMU and University of Southampton, author of many works such as What is Media Archaeology, A Geology of Media, and the very recent operational images from the visual to the invisual, among others, of course. Hi, Yusi, thank you so much for taking the time. Hi, Neya. Hi, Axioma in general as well. I'm, I'm really glad to be uh, part of this uh, series of conversations that I've been listening. And I, may I just say that you just had, you, I mean, you've had a wonderful lineup of speakers already. So it's, it's really lovely to be in dialogue with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was very fortunate that Axioma just got a, a whole bunch of really interesting thinkers and, you know, gave me their number, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. So I would start by saying that uh, I've been reading some of your work, of course, and it's very interesting and not necessarily immediately graspable for me. At least I don't want to underestimate anyone listening, of course. Because you, how shall I put it, tinker with what is familiar in the way we come to conclusions. And I believe that's important, but it's hard to find the vocabulary for an entry into what I want us to talk about and on a podcast, no less. Um, but I'll try anyway. So the last four episodes have been about scale in some ways. And I think that this fifth one might just be a culmination of sorts and it will kind of connect to all of them, but it'll, it'll bring us somewhere new as well and really extend the, the concept itself that the entire mini series was supposed to be about. So in the beginning of your essay for, for Axioma, the postscriptum, you see wrote an essay, there is plenty of room in the simulation. <clears throat> you can find it at the Axioma's website as well. You write that nothing actually works at a one-to-one -one scale. All is mediation, all is radically about scales, relations, and friction. And you explain it like this, if you allow me to quote you some more. <laughs> Across media and aesthetics, scale becomes mobilized inside and into the techniques of knowing. How does this compare to that? How is this a proxy of that? What then, how fast, how slow, 
at what rate of variation. The seeming simplicity of measurement cascades into a series of scalar loops that reveal something essential about scale itself. It is the middle of a meddling bundle of forces. So how to talk about this meddling bundle of forces within our very own meddling bundle of forces would be my first question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice way of throwing it back to me. <laughs> in other words, in other words it's, it's one of those questions of what? <laughs> no, but you, no, you, you, you point to a really interesting set of um, coordinates, especially in the context of the whole series at Axiom and, and, and the podcast series as well. The whole essay that I was asked to write uh, for Axioma is also something that has been sort of a bubbling, um, bubbling under and emerging in dialogue, both obviously in relation to Axioma's series, but also at Transmediale. And one of the early prompts for this little text was dialogue with Transmediales director Nora, Nora Murchu, uh, in terms of um, questions of how scale relates to contemporary forms of simulation, hence this weird sort of looking into questions of simulation through scale. What I've been interested in is, is, is exactly the sort of ways in which scale functions to standardize, and yet at the same time, in multiple kinds of theoretical and, let's say, politically reflective and politically smart approaches like critical post-humanities and variations of queer theory and so forth, it's been also not just seen as a tool of imperial standardization, which it has been, right? but also as this sort of intensive force of perhaps looking things differently, of rescaling, of finding alternative perspectives, of looking at scale not as stable address system or positions like big, small, larger metric systems, whatnot, but as this capacity to enter into intensive ways of rescaling. Um, in a way as well. I've been interested in this sort of really two seemingly incommensurable, um, incompatible ways of understanding scale. The sort of a like its force as potentia, as, as this radical potentiality, and as its form as power, as stabilization. And of course, I'm here echoing just the same duality of terms that Michel Foucault was interested in and that Rosie Braidotti, our wonderful pioneering critical feminist post-human philosopher, has been often mentioning as well. The fact of how we think both potentialities and the stabilizing forms of power, both as different aspects of power. And I think that the same question would apply to scale as well, of how to think about it inside those different vocabularies. Hence, this is probably the reason why text, and I'm the first one to call it out, the text itself comes out as a bit peculiar. It comes out as a bit, even, I don't know, awkward sounds negative, but as this sort of a, like trying to tease out these different 
well potentials again uh, of of the concept as such as well and hence the notions of meddling middle and middle voice and the idea that scale is not just the end result but scale is at the center of a generative notion of force hence media and middle and all these sort of a like a bit packed and condensed forms of ways of trying to verbalize or write a couple of sentences that would try to clinch the idea of it as a conceptual force of, uh, of, of scaling. And I know that I've been now rambling already in, in all kinds of ways that might have actually just gotten us more muddled in the middle instead of getting us demuddled. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. And I, I really wouldn't say your text is awkward. I would say it's quirky. <laughs> all right, but... that's better. But that's good quirky, you know? Everyone needs some quirky right now because we seem to be kind of stuck. When we come to this notion that all, like you quote Horton, I think that all media mediates scale, that they always stand in the middle of at least two scales uh, and produce effects across a scalar boundary. Mm. I think I'm still stuck at my... First question, or yeah. maybe I'm, I'm going to elaborate with a, with a different kind of question. Yeah. One thing that I'd like to point out is that thinking about how media is working on us and through us and looking at various infrastructures on top of that uh, doesn't imply that there's some ultimate like self or truth or way of being that we're trying to uncover, right? In a Yeah. That would exist in a natural scale, so to speak, because famously the medium is the message or the massage. Yeah. But since such such a reference of a one-to-one or of nature doesn't really exist within this theory, what are the methodologies to investigate? Mm-hmm. What can we speak in reference to, if, you, if this makes sense, what I'm asking? Uh, you know, it totally makes sense. I mean, exactly, the, the starting point of we're never one-to-one is, is more like me just um, bluntly rehashing a massive amount of both structuralism and early philosophy of from, you know, Jacques Derrida, that all we have is difference. It's, there's no one-to-one to all kinds of other versions of this as well. But also trying to escort the idea that, okay, if things are not one-to-one, in which ways are we never present in this situation? What are the sort of elements of mediation in which embodiment works, thinking works, perception, projection, all kinds of things that start to sound much closer to the vocabulary of media studies, media theory, cultural theory, and such. And while sort of uh, trying to track this, what you already pointed to, this sort of like really complexifying the notion of scale, I'm also really traditionalist in the sense that I'm interested in quite a lot of really concrete techniques of scale and scaling, cultural techniques, one could say, in homage to a lot of writers, Bernhard Siegert, Sibyl Kremer, and many others, many of them from Germany. and. I hate this term. I mean, I don't hate the term, but it's a funny term, German media studies. Um, But referring to cultural techniques through which particular seemingly ontological things are bootstrapped into the world. And in a similar way, I'm interested in what are the concrete techniques through which scale comes into existence 
or scale functions as a hinge that brings things into existence. Both scale in relation to its measurement capacities, indeed, um, that is central. That's like probably the starting point when we discuss scale often. Um, but also the way in which these measurement techniques and these mediating techniques are ontogenetic. They bring about worlds. They're world-making in those terms as well. So the history of media of scale is one. Um, the history of cultural techniques of scale is closely related, and those already give us insights into how to start unpicking or perhaps unfolding these large ontological or sometimes even metaphysical um, notions of spatiality and temporality and whatnot that seem to be also the coordinates through which we make sense of our contemporary moment. Um, I'll give an example. I mean, this is a banal example, I think. Many would say that many of my examples are banal in general, but let's not get stuck with that. But one that I did some work on, the notion of deep time itself, clearly implying a particular scale and scale of thinking about temporality, of depth of temporality, of long-term durations, and how these seemingly quantifiable, I mean, quantifiable notions of temporality also become qualitative as much of discourse around deep times has implied. The idea that geological temporalities or durations become de facto, weirdly enough, urgent for a contemporary political moment of climate change and reactions towards climate change and all that. Or in other ways, thinking about notions of subjectivity through um, deep time. So there's all kinds of mechanisms that are at the back of these, these large philosophical notions. The historian of science, John Tresh, talks about cosmographics. I think that was the term. God, my head is like a sieve today. Cosmographics where are these concrete monuments or images or other sorts of I'll use the word hesitantly, representations that seem to condense, but also bootstrap into the world, cosmological valorizations, values or worldviews and such. So there's a very similar kind of a, you know, historical interest at play when I speak about techniques of scale. And in the little essay, and I'll, I'll stop rambling on, in the little essay I mentioned this couple of snippets of concrete details. So for instance, um, role of, let's say, early cinema as a particular way of rescaling modes of perception, temporality on the micro scale, slowing down, um, speeding up, et cetera, et cetera. This is basic stuff, again, to a lot of cinema scholars and so forth, other sort of a techniques that have done the same. So this is where my background as trained historian comes out that I'm, I'm interested in this historical aspect of how to tease out, how to tease out these concrete situations in which scale becomes situated in a way, or let's say the operations of scale become situated as such. Mm, thank you. First of all, uh, really, please stop apologizing for a so-called rambling, because uh, like that's the kind of the point of the podcast is to get you uh, to talk about stuff. So like, <laughs> it's very much welcome that you, you talk and <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Although I, I have been told now that the four uh, episodes are already out and I'm getting feedback that I'm way too much of a fan girl. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, that was so interesting. So I have to, st 
<laughs> like I did genuinely think that was interesting. I'm just trying to not be no, 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 you can, overly. You, no, you can. I'm gonna be cool about it. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can start saying exactly like, "No, I disagree completely. Make no sense." <laughs> Jokes aside. talking about how you're interested in this historical aspect and you write a lot about different histories but like in relation to the present moment especially when we're talking about uh, media and technologies mm -hmm. which histories of media and technologies kind of usually get left out and why is that so interesting for for us now and for uh, the way we can understand why we're thinking about media and technology the way we are thinking about them now mm. as we maybe arrived to understand them through a very teleological and positive kind of kind of narrative i got really early on attracted by the notion you know the work in media archaeology in 1990s and early 2000s that many colleagues and writers that I admire from Erki Huhtamo to Juliana Bruno to many, many, many others, Siegfried Zielinskis and everybody, were conducting as both, in this sense, quote-unquote, positive ways of mapping such things that haven't been necessarily spoken or written about in relation to mainstream histories. And then, not just in that sort of a positive sense, I mean, this is not in the negative sense, but as also as an exercise of exactly thinking of like, what is the role of ruptures and omissions as part of forms of knowing? How do we know by way of mapping out things that are not known or that are systematically excluded? And this is obviously much things that from Foucault to uh, feminist histories to multiple other kinds of histories of minorities have been done. And this was the impetus of really early work in, I mean, new cultural histories were really influential in this area as well of mapping exactly like the histories of excluded voices, um, whether through racialization and gender, gender or some other aspects as well. And this was so very central to around the time when I was studying history as well. And probably some of it fed into my interest as well of how to think about the minority in the historical sense and as a conceptual sense. So that was one thing in terms of like trying to think of this really interesting political task of, of what, what kind of histories matter and why and how to situate oneself as well. Even if I early on ventured into writing things that sort of a relate to that topic as well of accidents and glitches and hiccups and things that seem to be out of place like computer viruses or in the case of my book on insects insect media of trying to rethink not just what has been left out but also what would be a different lens or conceptual horizon for a way of writing about for instance media and technology that would sort of a expand scope of mediation. In that case, it was through what some would call metaphorics of non-human animals as centers of mediation that then also try to look at it very concretely in relation to histories of media. And this sort of a methodology brings us back to, in a way, the topic of rescaling as well, of 
if concepts are like engines, they, they also have very different kind of mechanisms as engines. It might sound a bit ma- no, masculine metaphor, but this shouldn't be read as a masculine engine, more like a beautiful, complex, um, quirky engine. This engine runs with scale at the center of its um, force or thrust. And, and the idea of concepts as instruments of rescaling that can be, quote-unquote, applied also to historical cases was really interesting to me. So, for instance, the notion of insect in insect media was basically about trying to think of alternative scales of perceptual capacities that do not follow any kind of a centrality of humans, male, white, especially, Eurocentric, whatever, but try to think of these capacities of perceptual difference as a historical force that in that case was read through um, non-human animals. And it sort of ends up the book as well in some post-human fem- feminism and sort of trying to track those conceptual themes in those terms. So what I'm getting at with this is sort of like pairing it up with your question as well, that there's sort of a question of omissions and the others of history. I don't anymore, haven't really referred to my work in terms of media archaeology in a long time, not for any other reason than the fact that I sort of like to think of my work more aligned with environmental humanities and environmental media. But the same idea about rescaling as a methodological way of of looking at, again, let's say media, is really important to me. And the most recent work, and we can t- discuss this next or later, is, is the sort of a rescaling that happens, and I've been learning so much, and still I don't know anything, is to think of mediations at scales of landscapes, architectures, spatial formations that are complex and that are central to understanding contemporary planetary conditions. In other words, replacing questions of media beyond media technologies into complex spatial formations um, that, you know, as a placeholder, um, I just call now or refer to landscapes. I'm happy to talk about this later as well. Yeah, of course, this would probably be a good time to move on to the operational images and other things discussed in your latest book. But before that, I have some questions, uh, or better yet, random thoughts. Not really my thoughts, just stuff I picked up from from what you wrote, I think. About this one uh, popular way of thinking about scale in, in digital media. So within just one limited meaning of scale, though, uh, how much, how many... Yeah. The answer is too much and too many. So this applies to when we talk of these popular metaphors like tsunamis of images, images flooding the, the digital, flooding the world. And you write about this in Photography of the Scale, how the abundance of images means they no longer mediate but make the world opaque. Mm. But as you mentioned, histories of information overloads from before teach us that the response to such a multitude is counting calculations and ordering. And today this might be a different kind of ordering and it involves machines. We can't ever look at a billion images, right? But a machine can. 
And this is the kind of ordering that is changing what images are or putting it into question whether they are images at all. Yeah. You track well exactly the sort of uh, problematics around which both myself and Thomas Dvozak, with whom we edited the book that you mentioned, Photography of the Scale, what we tried to sort of uh, set as a horizon of how we approach the question of quantity. Quantity as abundance, as this informational flood um, that has been both represented but also not represented because of its invisual, unvisual written nature in relation to data regimes of, you know, exactly a billion images would be probably not a visual entity anymore. A billion images would be an entity of of a different, uh, hesit- I mean, I dare to say of scale than visuality, if that even makes sense, but it hopefully does, that one would have to start thinking about the implications of it indeed in terms of its notions of what is an image anymore at that case and what is perception or um, of sensing of such images or observation. And what I true to both Tomas and I in that book and all the contributors in photography of the scale, but also operational images, is try to kind of attract this in terms of not just basically of what it is as social and sociological theme which is important and how it impacts our ways of understanding contemporary regimes of data and machine learning, computer vision and whatnot, but also this not art historical, but histories of visuality theme where we are transformed gradually into what Eddie McKenzie and Anna Monster call invisual. And that's also the subtitle of my operational images book is is this sort of implication that it's a shift from visual to individual cultures, even if I don't believe in linear shifts. In other words, billions of images, but also images as aggregated on data platforms, um, whether they're social media platforms or other forms of scientific imaging, and the logics of those image clusterings, analytics, and then processes of machine learning, for instance, are not of the order of visual anymore, even if they seem to be pertaining to images. And that's the paradox that we're sort of facing and that Munster and Mackenzie have really nicely um, outlined already in their work. And I try to pick up on that as well of like, what would be then a conceptual change for both artistic work and artistic practice that is traditionally called visual art practice, and then um, theoretical work on art history or visual studies that has to deal with the transformation of an image into something that is not paradoxically a visual image anymore, right? So there's something about this this condensation of the image as a site of both visuality and individuality that often is talked about in relation to data. And I know that the previous podcast, you already went into this really interesting direction of like images and data and the same sort of, uh, the same vibe, the same the same um, question um, runs through my operational images book as well of in which conditions does data as a reference point, help us to understand transformation of visual culture into invisual culture? And in which ways is this part of the contemporary context of digital platforms, mass mass images, and the aggregation of images, and the clustering, and 
and processing of images through <clears throat> machine learning platforms? And in which ways can we also read this back into certain pre-digital forms of image practices? And I know, again, that this was mentioned in the previous podcast as well, but for instance, I'm fascinating. It's not about the mass image, but it's about the measurement image, photogrammetry, and the photogrammetric image as such is an early version of what I try to track so that we don't lay into this idea that in-visuality is only about the digital mass image, which it is to a large extent, but I'm really interested in sort of breaking this all too straightforward narrative with a couple of notes like how might certain practices of invisuality of images be part of earlier um, periods as well, like 19th century photogrammetry, for instance. Yeah, I think you do find so many alternative slash neglected histories in, in this context so when you look for this invisual of images before the digital culture of today, and I know you hinted before at moving away from media archaeology lately, but this historical perspective seems relevant at this point in the conversation. So you mention in some of your works that the way we've been, let's say, constructing the frame within which we think about images is built more on the history of cameras than the history of sensors, for example. What what could have been our different kind of frame? Oh, right, the historical perspective. One obvious one that I guess every historian would say is that at least demonstrates that whatever is claimed to be new is rarely new. Um, I'm not sure if I'm in the same business. Perhaps it sometimes is a good rhetorical trick to uh, be um, justifying of why, for instance, I focus on certain historical examples besides their quirkiness and whatnot. I think in the case of, for instance, operational images, I, on the one hand, as Anthony mentioned in the previous podcast, key notion for, from, from Harun Faroqi, um, on the one hand, I was trying to track without operational images being a book about Faroqi, I was trying to track these little cues and hints and traces that Harun had kindly left us to follow in his wonderful video and film works. And one of those hints was indeed photogrammetry and something that was sort of a drop there with beautiful lines about its role and lots of hints about its role as a particular establishing a particular regime of measurement. So I was interested in following up on slightly bit more, and it's still very short what I present in the book, but still this question of measurement embedded inside the technical image, which can be also a drawing. In other words, this site of both early photography that then develops in all, all kinds of you know, practices in early cinema as well. We could talk about the lines of Etienne Jules Marais and others who were interested in using cinematic um, techniques for motion and measurement as, as one key axis of what the moving image can do. But also then indeed, there's sort of early forms of capturing by way of either drawing or then gradually by photo photography, but also photogrammetry. And this sort of a like became to me really, really about trying to kind of make the point that is 
utterly simple as such. It's it's the fact that these forms of images are capturing vector data, um, and they already function as particular forms of capture vector data that themselves can then have operational purposes as a lot of photogrammetry had in relation to urban planning, military, and whatnot. And then this idea that the practices, I mean, practices of photography, and again, photographic historians can do this much better than I can, but still already had a role to play as, as sites of abstraction. And, and this is why I'm fascinated about the images that I was kind of thinking with. A lot of them from French mid-19th century to early 20th century sources on manuals or photogrammetry, for instance. They, they're beautiful as this almost like un-images um, that are sort of like more about descriptions of how the image can capture abstractions and lines as such. And this led me into this sort of a loop where I started thinking about all kinds of ways in which the organizational capacities of photographic and other images becomes a central cue. And of course, others have been doing this in other ways as well, um, I'm, I'm teaching a class in Aarhus at the moment on data and digital culture. And next week, we'll talk about histories of data. And one of the texts that I, I chose for our students was Lila Lee Morrison's text on Francis Galton, the eugenist, the racist eugenicist, Francis Galton and the composite portrait. Great example about statistical forms of imaging. So this kind of a, like moments of 19th century, early 20th century imaging practices as sites of statistical knowledge and data become really, to me, ways of looping back into contemporary forms of computer vision for me and for many other writers as well. Does this really answer the question of, okay, what does history give us? I'm not really sure. I think I'm interested in the idea of exactly these, these sorts of loops that can be established um, with the help of archival material and historical material, um, loops that are, again, conceptually engined, as I was talking about it earlier, conceptually engined by different kinds of scales. And I guess, again, this is just my training kicking in as the phrase goes, but like, it's just this uh, automatic instinct of trying to historicize a lot of the things that are happening on at the moment in terms of the wider data image uh, regime that, again, referring to previous episodes, I know that you've already been discussing, and hopefully this also links to those topics that others have been discussing. Yeah, of course, it links very well, uh, probably especially to the last episode. Uh, now that your answer brought us back here, let's say, in, in the present, but through a different perspective on the narrative, you often mention the implications being technical, aesthetic, and political. Now, as to the political implications, we don't have much time, but I would love it if you would share some last inspiring podcast thoughts on that for the end. <laughs> oh, God. I think some of this leads into the topic that I sort of like implied earlier as well, and I'll try to be brief, but like where... Well, for instance, the notion of operational images leads me is both a historical investigation, but also trying to see of what is the scope of operational images and operationality in this, this sort of a like extended perceptual mechanisms. And one thing that I'm really interested in, in many projects that I'm 
engaged in at the moment and collaborations like with Abelardo Hilfurnier, the Madrid-based um, um, artist and scholar, is how this affords a particular way of understanding environmental imaging. So the ways in which scales, technical images, operationality features in this um, seemingly benevolent um, mode of knowing and modeling climate and other environmental factors, right? Thing that we're supposed to be all agreeing on, as we are. But it's also part of the political task here is to see, and what I'm interested in, this is not a this is not an answer, but it's probably just a painting a picture of the problematic and the field that I'm interested in. And, and I hope that also operational images slightly at least um, goes into it, is the weaponization of particular forms of imaging and other forms of environmental modeling that comes to play a crucial role, has played and will play a crucial role in this extended geopolitics. So on the one hand, I started with notes to the wonderful works of colleagues in queer and post-human theories and the ways in which embodiment and affect and other things work in relation to questions of scale and whatnot. And I'll ending up with seemingly a different scale of questions of climate, environmental imaging, and the ways in which it a particular kind of geopolitics, a planetary scale geopolitics emerges around um, security, weaponization, and um, climate change. This might be a bit abstract and so forth, but hopefully it slightly goes in the right direction. Yes, it absolutely does. And I said I wouldn't be a total fangirl, but that was so interesting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yusi. Thank you. This was really such a pleasant and, and rewarding uh, dialogue with you, Nea. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. You can find Yusi's essay, There is Plenty of Room in the Simulation, and a wealth of other content at axioma.org. And for those interested, there is more information on UC's work in the description of this episode. Scale is a podcast series hosted by myself, Nea Berger, curated by Janis Pakinjansha and produced by Marcela Ukretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Art. The series is part of the 14th edition of the Tactics in Practice Discursive Program, which was made possible by Kunz Platform for Contemporary Investigative Art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the links in the notes. This episode was recorded and edited by me and mixed by Stash Kramer. The music was created by the amazing Kasper Torkar. Once again, you're welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content. And if you like what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation. I did say this the last time, but this time it's more accurate, or is it? I don't know, I lied before. but. Yeah, here we end Scale, the first series of the new Tactics and Practice podcast channel. But this channel will not be abandoned, so do stay subscribed. We'll be back with a new series soon, and some more after that. We already have a bunch of plans. Thanks to everyone again, uh, from me personally too. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenia.
Tactics and Practice Podcast.